All right. So as many of you heard, when we um, when Pastor Richard comes back on Sat- on Sunday, uh, we're going to be continuing our study through Matthew. You may remember that he skipped chapters 24 and 25 and went straight for the uh, Passion. But now we're going to jump back to chapter 24 in Matthew. And no, I'm not going to do that tonight, but I am going to kind of refer to it because tonight's study kind of is setting the stage for this. Um, in Matthew 24, Jesus really is telling us the signs of the end of the age. And anyone who's been observing world news, and in fact really has been observing this for the past 20 years or so, can see a lot of these signs that Jesus had given his disciples. And he didn't shroud them in poetic biblical language. He made it plain some of the things that were going to happen. For example, wars and rumors of wars, uh, famines, epidemics of fatal diseases, large earthquakes all over the world, persecution of Christians, uh, the lack of pity or empathy for others, um, people turning away from the true faith and actually denouncing those who remain faithful, uh, false prophets, false doctrines that are designed to see- deceive even the faithful who are still in the church. And then you'll see rampant sin and people trying to justify why they do that sin. But most interesting of all, the gospel being spread everywhere on this planet. Okay? Nowhere but now is that happening. Okay? In all of history, we have the capability of spreading the gospel to every corner of the world. This is something that's a little scary. But it's really exciting because... With these signs around us, we see that for the true believer, our redemption is drawing near. Do I hear an amen on that? Yeah. It is almost time for us to go home. But before we start packing our bags, which we don't, okay, we have to remember there's a downside to that, that there's still a lot of people lost out there, and that our job is to reach the lost, and we don't have a lot of time to do it in. But... Sometimes it would seem like this is easy. Hey, we tell the gospel, people are just going to come in and say, yeah, right, this is, this is what we need. And yet there's a lot of opposition. And sometimes the opposition comes from within our own church. And I'm not talking specifically Calvary Chapel, Monrovia, but those who claim to have a belief in Christianity. Those that say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church every Sunday and sometimes I'll even go on midweeks. It's sad to think that people like that are actually harming us. Really? Yeah. Peter talks about it in his second epistle. He describes them as scoffers. Don't have to turn to this. I'll read it to you. Second Peter 2, or excuse me, Second Peter 3, 2 through 4 says, But be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this First, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Yeah, Jesus promised to come back, did he? Well, where is he? You hear that? In true egotistical form, man thinks that just because something hasn't happened, it's not going to happen. 
It's an awful lot like a person who speeds and is reckless, uh, as a reckless driver saying, I've never gotten in an accident, so that doesn't necessarily follow. Okay? This is really disturbing that so many professing Christians have fallen and are falling for this mindset. Why? The Bible makes it clear. Well, a lot of reasons, but really it boils down to self. They don't want to believe it. They want to think that the time things will go on exactly as they've had for years because there's no accountability. Peter actually explains it. If we go on and continue on in that passage, verses 5 through 7, here's Peter's comment. For this they willfully forget. Note that word, willfully. They forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water, referring to, of course, the flood of Noah. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, and are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So in essence, what's happening, men deliberately dismiss from their mind that God made the heavens by the word of his command. And that he's going to use water once in judgment to destroy sinful man with a mighty flood, and that it's going to happen again, this time with fire. And in that fire, the ungodly will perish once more. Now, here comes another argument. And yes, I have heard these. Well, if that's the case, if God is just and righteous, why is he taking so darn long to deal out judgment? If God were as impatient as the rest of us, I don't think Adam and Eve would have made it out of the garden alive. <laughs> Fortunately, we don't think, or God doesn't think like we do. Peter goes on, verses 8 through 10, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. God is a God of love, and as such, he will relent on judging the world. But... As a righteous and a just God, he has to pass sentence at some point in time. And it's going to happen once everyone who has repented has actually repented. Once that happens, there's no turning back. His judgment will be sure, and there will be no repeats, no more chances. Now, we see this all through the Bible, but tonight we're going to look at a very famous incident in Daniel 5. Um, A story that may not be familiar to those outside the church, but definitely familiar to those that have been in the church for any length of time. Yet, it has dropped into our popular culture. If you've ever heard the phrase, the handwriting on the wall, ah, yes, you know what I'm talking about. That phrase, by the way, just means there there are clear signs that something unpleasant or unwelcome is going to happen. So, This story is one of the best illustrations of the point where God says, enough, you have crossed the line, judgment is coming, and now there's no escape. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. 
And while you're going there, we're going to be starting in verse 1. While you're going there, let's kind of review a little bit and kind of set the stage for what's happening here. Now, we started what I call this intermittent study of Daniel back in 2008, okay? And so we've, we've seen a little bit. If you haven't been here with us the whole time, that's okay. I'll kind of catch you up to speed tonight. But we were first in chapter one. We were first introduced to four teenagers, Daniel and his three friends. And what had happened, if you remember the story, was that they were nobles within the kingdom of Judah. And because of rampant sin and judgment, Nebuchadnezzar II, the king of Babylon, came into Jerusalem, took the nobles captive, took them back to Babylon, and in the meantime, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and he took back all the elements of worship that were in the temple, gold and silver cups and everything that was sanctified for the worship of God alone. Okay, and we're going to get to that because those vessels play an important part in this story tonight. Now, when these four teenagers, they're finding themselves now in a foreign land. Nebuchadnezzar, in case you don't know too much about him, was not known for his gentleness and kindness. Uh, but he wasn't an arbitrary tyrant either. He, when he killed somebody, as strange as this may sound, he usually had a good reason. He wasn't one of those, if you were one of his counselors, you walked out feeling for your head, making sure it was still there. He had a reason for everything he did. And you know what that reason was? The glory of his kingdom, his own kingdom. It's selfish. He wanted to be the absolute ruler in Babylon, and he made sure that everyone knew that he was in charge. Now, he also realized that killing people was also a waste of material. So he did something that actually was unusual in this era. He took the nobles of his conquered people, these young teenagers, brought them to Babylon, and then raised them up as Babylonians. Okay? He wanted to basically teach them Babylonian religion, Babylonian culture, politics, the whole thing, because he wanted them to work for him. He wanted them to basically be part of the ruling elite, so why would you rebel if you're one of the people calling the shots? And it worked. And sure enough, here's Daniel and his three friends. They're there, but they had already made a vow to themselves and to God. We're not going to compromise in any way, shape, or form. Yes, we're here. Yes, we're going to go through the curriculum. We're going to learn all about this pagan religion we're dealing with and how they're supposed to read dreams, but we're never going to compromise in our worship of God. That included sticking to dietary, the dietary law. Okay? That included bowing to an idol when Nebuchadnezzar said, if you didn't, we're going to throw you in a fiery furnace. And they still stood. No, we're not going to. And this persistence was rewarded. They, they went high up into the Babylonian government. Daniel himself made a name as being probably the wisest of all the wise men in Babylon. Whenever there was a mystery that needed to be unraveled, he was the one everyone went to. It got to the point that by the time we had reached chapter 4 of Daniel, Daniel had pretty much formed a kind of a, almost a friendship with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar kind of mellowed in his old age, but was still very proud. And what had happened was that he had a dream. And 
Daniel, he t- you know, he went to the usual suspects, the usual Chaldeans and astrologers and soothsayers, and they didn't know what was going on. So he called Daniel. And again, you wonder why. Why didn't you call him in the first place? So Daniel comes up. King tells him the dream. And Daniel just says, oh, dear, this is not good. He actually probably was very fond of the man. And his words was, I wish what I'm about to tell you was applied to your enemies. But I got to tell you. And he was doing what good friends do. I'm giving you the bad news. I'm not going to candy coat it. I'm not going to pull punches on this. I'm giving you the bad news. And he basically said, guess what? You're under judgment. If you don't repent, you're going to lose your sanity. You're going to be going out, you know, like a beast of the field. And you're going to basically completely lose every shred of human dignity that you've got. But God is going to restore you as soon as you realize that he is the one that put you in power in the first place. Daniel 4.27 adds a bit of advice from Daniel to the king. Therefore, O king, if my advice be acceptable to you, break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel said, there's a way out. This is what you do, and maybe this judgment I just told you about won't come. Unfortunately, the king did not repent, and we went through this story at some point in the past. After one year, judgment fell. For seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was a raving lunatic. But at the end of that seven years, well, let me read what Nebuchadnezzar had to say. Chapter 4, verse 34. And at the end of that time, the end of the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom and my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me and I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth And his ways are justice, and get this last line, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. This was a pagan ruler, finally realizing who God really is and giving praise to the Lord. Those last words, those who walk in pride he is able to put down. This is not just a good summary of chapter 4. This is prophetic for chapter 5, which, by the way, is set about 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death. During that time, the Babylonian Empire pretty much began its pretty swift decline. There were several kings thrown in. You had Nebuchadnezzar's son, Amal Marduk. Little is really known about this man, but he apparently did learn a bit from his father because he is noted in the Bible and in historical records as having released from prison the last king of Judah, Jehoiakim. 
He had been arrested and imprisoned 37 years before by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he wasn't the last ruler of Judah. He was merely the last recognized king. Amal Marduk just let him out of prison. He treated him, uh, treated him with kindness and allowed him to eat at the royal table and basically gave him a pension. Now, this action apparently upset a lot of people within the religious hierarchy in Babylon because after two years, M.L. Marduk was assassinated. And his brother took the throne, or his brother-in-law took the throne. He reigned four years, and we know less about him. And then he had a young son who was below the age of ruling. He was dead after nine months. And now we come to a fellow by the name of Nabonidus, who wasn't even Babylonian. Most scholars think that he was actually Assyrian. But he was the husband of Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. So this gave him a little bit of legitimacy to become the king. The thing about Nabonidus was he really didn't rule very much. He was out of Babylon probably more than he was there. And though he, because of this, he appointed his own son, the star of today's chapter, Belshazzar, as a co-regent. Essentially, son, you rule while I'm out doing all sorts of different things. Co-regent meant that Belshazzar was treated as king, he was spoken of as king, and he had all the power of the king. He was second in command. So if you're familiar with the story, a lot of questions start being answered at this point. Belshazzar even though he was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, he would still refer to the old king as his father. He was his, his you know, predecessor, his ancestor. This was very common in those days. So, we're almost there. Because a little more history going on here. You remember the school teacher? Got to learn your history a little bit. Okay? At this point, this is uh, 539 B.C., Babylon appeared to be strong, but it was weakened, very, very weakened. And those people outside of Babylon saw this, including a fellow by the name of Cyrus the Great, who was the king of the Medes and the Persians. And he saw that there was a lot of disunity among the Babylonians. Um, Belshazzar himself wasn't very popular. He was a good soldier, but he really wasn't a people person. He really um, offended a lot of people in the Babylonian noble tree and the elite, and especially among the religious uh, elite. And Nabonidus, because he was never around, and he himself had some odd religious habits as well, he was even less popular. And these are the two guys ruling this empire. Yeah, Something in this condition, this empire is ripe for conquest. And Cyrus saw it, and he quickly invaded Babylon. Believe it or not, within a year of seeing all this taking place. He defeated Nabonidus in a battle near a town called Opus, about 100 miles northeast of, of, of the capital of Babylon. Cyrus's forces then marched straight toward Babylon, surrounded it, then settled down for what promised to be a very long siege. And it is during this siege that this whole story in chapter 5 takes place. During a siege. Now let's read it together. Starting in verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast 
for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Let's stop here for a moment. It may seem very odd that Belshazzar would choose this time to have a huge party. But let's consider the situation and his own mindset. The defenses of Babylon, by the standards of that day, were considered pretty much impregnable. The walls of the city were over 150 feet high and were 25 feet wide, essentially wide enough for two chariots to pass each other without coming even close to one another. There were 250 towers that were placed at regular intervals around the entire circuit of the walls, and the eight gates of the city were well protected and well manned and were these huge gates approximately 18 inches thick that were made of brass and bronze. So even a battering ram would have a hard time even making a dent into them. The Euphrates River provided an uninterruptible water supply as it went right through the middle of town, and there was enough food stored within the city to feed the entire population for 25 years. Now that may sound like a lot, but this has been verified by historians. So from a military standpoint, Belshazzar wasn't worried. Remember, he was a good soldier. He did know his tactics. He may not have been informed of his father's defeat, so maybe he even thought that his father would be coming along with another army. Then they would be able to crush the invasion from inside and from out. But it really didn't matter. They were safe as anything inside the walls of the city. Okay. Now, secondly... This festival, this feast that he was throwing, was a religious festival. It was an annual festival that they had held every year. And essentially, Belshazzar was saying, it's business as usual. usual. We're having our party. We're having our feast. It doesn't matter if Cyrus is out there wanting to come in. He's not invited. Let's party, guys. This is the time. This would then also, because it was a religious festival, explain why he decided to get the sacred vessels of the Jews. Now, even Nebuchadnezzar had not done that. He had had a respect, even before he was saved or realized that God was calling the shots, he still had a respect for foreign religions. They were plunder. He brought them from Jerusalem. He placed them in his treasury, but he wasn't going to use them just for everyday drinking cups. But Belshazzar, well, also keep in mind, back to history lesson, in this era, wars between kingdoms, it was not just a military campaign, it was a religious campaign. They figured that not only were the armies of these nations battling, but the gods of these nations were battling too, and it would be the stronger god who won. Now, in the eyes of the Babylonians, the god of Israel, the god of Judah, lost That's why Judah was conquered. So therefore, that's why all the stuff was taken back from Jerusalem 
It was basically a defeated God. His property now became our property. Now, let's face it. Belshazzar was drunk. It says it there. And he wanted to show his contempt for this defeated God. Yeah, he knew about. We find later he knew about everything that happened with Nebuchadnezzar. But he's a young guy. He's thinking, that happened a long time ago. We are in a religious war now. Cyrus is trying to take us over. So let's raise morale even more by reminding ourselves of Nebuchadnezzar's great victory over Judah and bring out those vessels and let's party with those. Yeah, sounds like a great idea. And he wasn't expecting any consequences. Why should he? He was the king. But he should have listened to his lessons when he was younger. Everyone in Babylon knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. This was big news. The king goes crazy, and suddenly he disappears for seven years. Then he comes back, and he gives out this long proclamation that we read in chapter 4. Despite what people may think, Nebuchadnezzar was not really all that unpopular. He was feared. People didn't want to displease him. But he did keep the ruling elite in power, and he secured the borders of Babylon and really didn't have any issues. The problems didn't show up until after he had died. It really, if you think about it, it showed a lot of the respect toward Nebuchadnezzar that the man was insane for seven years And no one tried to take his place. We don't know how it happened. And again, history records this taking place that things just went on kind of like business as usual. The nobles and probably Daniel is one of the chief uh, counselors. They just basically handled the routine business. And here's the thing. When he was better, when he realized that God was in charge, he came to himself, as he put it. His nobles came out and say, okay, you ready to come back? Let's go. That's tribute to Nebuchadnezzar's character, that they thought he was so valuable, the king, even when he was insane. As soon as he got better, they wanted him back. And also a tribute to God, that he preserved that king in these situations, even though most every other nation, it had been the end of his life. But it didn't really matter to Belshazzar, drunk or not, his actions, they're all politically and religiously motivated. But as we now see in verse 5 of chapter 5, Belshazzar didn't have the last word. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried out to bring in the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. Party is over. Everyone saw it. This was not a drunken hallucination. Everyone saw the hand. Everyone saw the writing. 
It was so terrifying to the king that his knees knocked against each other, and he could not stand. And to be honest, if this was not so serious of a situation, it's almost comical. I mean, this is the man who always was smugly in control of himself and others, and he's completely freaked out, and justly so. I mean, this is something that everyone saw. This would freak any sane man. So Belshazzar, of course, as we see, he immediately calls for the wise men of Babylon, usual crowd, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, and he's asking this question, what did it all mean? What's this all about? And he wanted an answer. His reward was extremely handsome. Promoted to the third ruler of the kingdom, only under Nabotidus and Belshazzar himself, then all the privileges and rights of that office. For that price, someone's got to have an answer. That was, I think, was his logic. And I don't think if he, he cared if someone made up something and tried to pass it on. However, no one even tried. It's clear from his actions, though, the king knew it was bad news. I mean, he's afraid. He's frightened. He's not taking it like, oh, yeah, that's just something that happens. He's sitting there thinking, okay, something's wrong. Lots of reasons for that. I think there are two big ones. I think that the Holy Spirit was working on and convicting him of his actions. And there was a secondary one. You've got an entire army outside the walls that want to kill you. Having something like that, it probably is bad news. Belshazzar tried to resolve the situation within his own power, failed miserably, and he was worse off than he was before. When it says his countenance was changed, probably the color drained out of his face. His, probably his teeth were chattering. He doesn't say that, but I'm willing to bet that he was just like, oh, now what do I do? What has happening to me? News of the events within the banquet hall spread. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy God is, is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, notice she repeats it, made him the chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Now, these words, it says the queen, remember this was Belshazzar's mother, okay? Nabana does this, you know, his father's wife, okay? Putting a plural on that, it's a tongue twister. But as we saw earlier, she was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, so she probably grew up with Daniel in the court. She was very familiar with what Daniel could do. And being mom, she didn't want her son to get all upset of what was happening. It's like, look, there is a solution. Calm down. Don't panic. Call Daniel, and he's going to come through for you just as he did for your grandfather. 
Now, here's a question that we might want to look at. If Daniel was so well-known within the government, why wasn't he called to begin with? Well, it seemed like the Babylonian kings, including Nebuchadnezzar, always seemed to try to go for the, the regular people first before they called in Daniel. But there's probably, at this point in time, a couple of reasons. First off, why wasn't he there? If he's a high government official, why wasn't he at the feast? It's a pagan religious holiday. Of course he wouldn't be there. He would never compromise his belief in God to do something like this. And he had made this known all through his long life. No one probably even bothered him about it anymore. Speaking of long life, if he was in his teens when Nebuchadnezzar brought him from Jerusalem, at this point in time, Daniel is probably now in his early 80s. And elsewhere in the book of Daniel, there are hints that he was not really in the best of health. Okay? So he may have been in semi-retirement. Okay? Oh, king. And plus also, here's another thing. Belshazzar was young. He could have cleaned house when he, uh, when he came to the throne of Babylon thinking, I don't need these old guys. Oh, Daniel, I don't really like what you say. You tell me that I have to watch, my, you know, watch myself around your God. Well, maybe that was okay for Nebuchadnezzar. I'm the king now. I don't want to hear it. So it's very likely that he just basically went in retirement, still was known, still was there, and we know that he was there because the king called for him. And sure enough, in verse 13, then Daniel was brought before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. Now, I have heard that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make, me, make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Now, this is really sad. One of the greatest counselors of the Babylonian Empire, who served, even served Belshazzar directly within the past three years, And the king has no clue who he is and doesn't even recognize him. Even in addressing him, the king seems to be patronizing. I mean, are you that Daniel? Not even trying to be polite. And here, Daniel had faithfully served Babylon for almost 70 years, and he had a proven track record. His Belshazzar's mother said as much. And he still has to lord it over him. Oh, yeah, you're one of those guys that we conquered in Judah. That was 70 years ago. Got anything else you want to tell me? The king, though, was desperate. I think a lot of it may have been he was trying to hide his fear. Because he wanted to know what it said. And he was willing to even put a Jew as the third ruler of the kingdom. Just tell me what this means. I need to know. And to be honest, this was a very familiar situation for Daniel. A divine revelation, an agitated king. He calls for his incompetent counselors. And then God's servants 
his servant comes to the rescue. But as before, Daniel was not impressed by any of these offers. Verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for another, and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. And, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom, majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in his pride— He was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over over it whomever he chooses." But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Though still respectful with his reply, Daniel clearly does not have the same respect for Belshazzar that he had for Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, he had respect for the office of the king, but not for the man himself. He was going to tell the king what the writing was, but he wasn't doing it for money. He could care less and probably because he knew what was going to happen. Now, why do you ask? Why, well, Pastor, why do you think he knew? Daniel was a, stu- a student of Scripture. In Daniel 9, we don't need to go into that, but he was talking, well, I'll read it to you. He's saying, in the first year of his reign, Dan- I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. He read his Bible. He knew that the captivity in Babylon was going to be lasting 70 years. So he also probably knew the book of Isaiah, talking about a man named Cyrus. In chapters 44 and 45 of Isaiah, I'll read part of that. Chapter 45, 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and I will make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. 
I have named you, though you have not known me. This is 150 years before Cyrus was even born. God saying, this is who's going to take Babylon down. Daniel knew what was happening. Cyrus is outside. Babylon is ripe for falling. He knew that whatever award that Belshazzar gave him was worthless. Go ahead, make me third ruler in the kingdom. It's not going to last long. So he reminds Belshazzar of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He goes through the whole list and basically says, you knew all this, but you ignored it. And you took the next step. You profaned the stuff that your grandfather wouldn't even touch. The holy vessels of God. The hand of the living God was visible to them, even though they were sitting there making praises to gods that had no hands, no living hands. So now, here we are. What did the God have to say to Belshazzar? Verse 24 of chapter 5. Daniel says, Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsen. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. That was that, short and sweet. Now, mene, meaning numbered or measured, signified that the years of Belshazzar's reign had reached their end. And the fact that it was repeated meant that the end was coming very quickly. Probably quicker than anyone there suspected. Tekel is related to the word for shekel, whose root word is to weigh. And in Belshazzar's case, God found him deficient in his scales and therefore rejected him. Therefore, Belshazzar's days were numbered as well as those of his kingdom. Perez actually has a double meaning. It's derived from the root word that means to divide, but its secondary meaning is Persia. Belshazzar's kingdom would be divided or separated from him and given to the Medes and the Persians, then besieging the city. God couldn't put any any plainer. So, what was Belshazzar's response? Did he say, oh, please forgive me, I don't want to do this, and intercede for me? Verse 29, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple, and put a chain of gold around his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. Now, remember what I said earlier. Belshazzar felt that this was bad news, and really, his worst fears had now been realized. The message was spelling his imminent doom. Perhaps by going through with his promise of of promoting Daniel, he was trying to buy God off. He was trying to forestall judgment. But... We don't read anywhere in Scripture that Belshazzar made any type of humbling, never asking for forgiveness, and didn't even ask Daniel to intercede. And God never gave him another chance. The end came swiftly, 
Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. You see, while the drama between Daniel and Belshazzar was taking place in the banquet room, history tells us what was going on outside. Cyrus didn't want to deal with a long siege, but he, so he came up with a very unique plan. In fact, he had used it once before elsewhere. Because of the high walls and the guard towers and the strong bronze gates, the people in the city of Babylon thought they were safe. But recall that the Euphrates River basically bisected the city. It flowed through Babylon from north to south. Now, this, unlike what some people may say, it was still fortified. Um, The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that there was a fortified fence that paralleled the river through the entire city. And at the river's end of each of the city's major cross streets, there were low gates in the fence that skirted the stream, which were like great, the great gates in the outer wall, huge bronze gates. And these gates, for protection, opened outwards toward the water. So you couldn't batter them inward. They had to be opened outward. So here's what Cyrus did. He split his forces into three groups. One group remained upstream, and they started digging trenches from the river into some nearby marshes, and they were diverting the river from its path. The other two groups remained by the walls, and when the water in the river was low enough, they entered Babylon under the walls from both north and south, going along the riverbed. Now, there were some water gates at the walls, but they didn't extend all the way to the bottom, so all they had to do is duck underneath them and continue marching in. Now, this was actually a very risky operation. If the Babylons had been aware of what Cyrus was up to, or if they had noticed the danger, they would have closed all those street gates along the river, and mounting upon the walls along both sides of the stream, they would have caught the Medes and the Persians in a trap. But because of the great feast and festival going on, no one in town knew what was happening until it was too late. So history tells us that the conquest of Babylon occurred on October 12, 539 B.C., and it was relatively bloodless. Belshazzar was killed, as were some of the palace guards, but the city itself was spared destruction as Cyrus entered victoriously. He appointed Darius the Mede as governor of the province of Babylon, and as will be seen in Daniel 6, he went on to consolidate his control of the new realm, the largest empire in the Near East up to that time, using many of the Babylonian administrators, including Daniel. But that's another study. So, here we are. It's 2016. Our nation was founded upon godly principles, despite what revisionist historians try to tell us. And as we have seen over the past few years, those principles are slowly being thrown out the window. More and more, the culture of our nation has no place for God. True believers are marginalized. They're labeled old-fashioned or intolerant. Many mainstream Christian churches are openly moving away from God's moral principles as laid out in Scripture, dismissing them as irrelevant for today's society. And yet, the warnings we got in Matthew 24 keep happening. The birth pangs 
of the end is coming about. What's interesting is this culture knows the truth. Every time something happens, what do people do? They run to the churches. Think about after 9-11. Churches were packed the following Sunday. They went, and when something goes wrong in a personal life, people go to the nearest Christian. Will you pray for me? I need your help. Sometimes people make these professions of faith. They come forward and say, Lord, I need you. But once the crisis is passed, all that goes out the window too. Why? They really didn't want God to take control of their lives. They just wanted to use him as a cosmic genie to solve their problems. And once the problem is solved, okay, don't need you anymore. They party on. Oh, they may not be praising idols, but they are not acknowledging the Lord as sovereign over the earth or sovereign over their own lives. They need to hear the words that Daniel said to Belshazzar, the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Our breath is a gift from God. I like the way James 4 puts this, verses 13 and 14. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I think that Belshazzar was expecting bad news, and it came upon him sooner than he thought. And it's the same for a lot of people. Remember what I said early on, there's not a lot of time left, but consider this rather sobering fact. About 107 people in the world today will slip into eternity every single minute. Some to be with Christ, Unfortunately, most go into eternal separation from God. The time for the decision for Christ is now. I have actually heard people say, oh, I want to live my life the way it is, but when I'm on my deathbed, I will give my life to Christ. Then I'll become a Christian. How do you know you're actually going to have a deathbed? I mean, all it takes, car crash, massive heart attack, Random act of violence. No deathbed. It's over. And it's too late. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. That word, appointed. Every single person in this room, unless the Lord comes beforehand, every single person in this room has an appointment with death. Gee, that's cheery sounding. Yeah, but it's true. We don't know when that appointment is. But we shouldn't really let it bother us. As Christians, we shouldn't let it bother us at all. Because, let's read that passage in Hebrews, but now let's add verse 28. As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment... So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin for salvation. As believers, we don't need to worry about it. 
What's the worst can happen? We'll be in heaven with the Lord. But if you're not a believer, you may now get an inkling of why our church always gives an opportunity for you to accept Christ. It's not because we are getting brownie points with somebody or are trying to raise our numbers. No, it's because God loves you and he wants you to spend eternity with him. And he was so desperate for this to happen, he gave his son, a perfect man, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could be with him forever. But like with anything, there's another side to that story. God gave us free will, either to accept or to reject the gift of salvation. This is not an automatic process. Having Christian parents isn't going to get you to heaven. Being an American isn't going to save you. Even going to church twice a week isn't going to do it. The choice is yours and yours alone, either to accept Christ or to reject him. And if you reject Christ, it's on you, no one else. When you face the Lord after you die, you're going to be there by yourself. You can't blame the pastor or can't blame your parents or the bully at the school or whomever. We're saying, oh, my friends, they, I was afraid of peer pressure. Where are your friends now? They aren't. Well, that's mean. God would actually do that? Think about this for a second. God loves you so much that if you want nothing to do with him, he is going to give you that wish. That's the other side of salvation, where if you reject him, you made that choice, and he is going to honor it. God never sent a single soul to hell. Everyone who's there went there upon their own accord, knowing full well what the consequences were going to be. Pastor, I really don't want to hear this. You are making me uncomfortable. It's politically incorrect. I'm hoping I'm making someone uncomfortable. Because that's my job. That's the job of every single believer who has unsaved friends, unsaved loved ones. Make them uncomfortable. So unlike Belshazzar, it will never be too late for them. They will accept Christ and they will spend eternity with them for the love of Christ. People have heard me say this before, that it's like knocking on a door of a house that's on fire. You're not just saying, Excuse me, uh, you might want to know your house is burning down. I really don't want to be offensive about this, but I thought maybe you'd like to know. If it's too much trouble, I'll come back later. No, you're banging on that door, you're kicking, you're screaming, you're howling, you're letting them know your life is in danger. Now, if they sit there and tell you, don't bother us, we're busy, it's on them. But salvation is like that. Don't bother us. We're busy with my life. I don't have time for God. He doesn't want me to have fun. Well, getting sick in the morning after a huge hangover, hearing snails crawl because of it. Oh, that sounds like a blast. <laughs> Worrying about where are you going to eat next? Where are the next paychecks going to come from? Yeah, sounds like a blast to me. No, the fun, you want to call it that, is that peace of Christ in your heart, knowing full well that he's got your back and 
Even though you're going through hard times, he's still there with you. You're not facing it alone. And when you die, you get to be with a man, with the, with the God who loves you so much that he gave the ultimate sacrifice. In the coming weeks, on Sunday morning, we're going to be looking at the end times together. And we're going to hear about the fact that there are people who are not saved after the church is removed in the rapture, they're going to be facing seven years of God's judgment. That's why time is short. We don't want anyone we love to be left behind in what's essentially hell on earth. And God doesn't want you to face that judgment. He wants you to be with him for eternity. Don't just pass off the story of Belshazzar as something that happened a long time ago. God is waiting for you, but he's not going to wait forever. At some point, like with Belshazzar, that last chance will be gone. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you again for this, these words. And a lot of them are unpleasant. A lot of them we see that you are a God of justice and a God of righteousness. And you have laid down your law your standards, your principles. And that as a nation, Father, we are rejecting them. I think of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 when he's praying for his nation. He's including himself. We have sinned. And Father, right now, we have sinned. We ask you right now for revival for our country, and we want that revival to start here, Father, with us in this room, in this church. You've showed us that the time is short. The warning signs are there. So, Father, give us your spirit to give us the boldness to reach out to those that we love who do not know you. And, Father, to withstand the rejection no matter how much it breaks our heart. When a person rejects you, it breaks your heart. We know. But Father, give us that strength. Give us the wisdom to reach out to those that need you, to be able to answer the questions that we can answer. And most of all, Father, be with our nation. You have promised that if your people who call you by your name Repent and turn from their evil ways, Father. We know that you will heal their land. We're asking for that one last revival before you return, Father, so that those who might have gone into eternity away from you, that they'll come into your presence now and be with you for eternity. And now, while our heads are bowed, eyes are closed, we're praying. I want to give an invitation for any who are unsaved, who have heard this and they're thinking, you know, I think you stuck a nerve. I've been kind of ignoring what I know, and now you're right, I'm ready. Father, I, you know, Pastor, I want to see the Lord. I want to see that one who died for me. I want to give my life to him because right now my life is in horrible shape. Anyone who wants to accept Christ for the first time, just go ahead and raise your hand.
And I also want to reach out to any who maybe know the Lord but have backslidden. They've they've forgotten. Well, they chose to forget what they knew when they first became Christians and that peace and love and knowledge that we knew that someone loved us so much they died. But now they've drifted away for whatever reason. We're not going to ask. If you at one time had that close walk and now you're far away and you want to come back, you want to be with him once again, again, raise your hand. So, Father, we're all family tonight here. So now we ask you to be with us all. As I prayed earlier, give us that strength of your spirit to reach out to those who need you. And once more, Father, we ask for the safe return of our pastor and his wife and the team back from Israel. And we ask you for traveling mercies for us tonight as we head on home. And bring us back safely on Sunday. We praise you now, Father. We give you all the glory and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.